New Japan Pro Wrestling. Come on, big man, you okay? Uh, you need to do some investigating. Investigate. These referees Cheater. are crooked. Cheater. You know what? I guarantee you, that referee, he's in cahoots with chaos. I bet he rides the bus with them, huh? Everybody goes out drinking with them, too. New Japan Pro Wrestling. Investigate. That is a conspiracy, conspiracy. that we want to solve. Just like we are going to solve the conspiracy of Area 51. You might have to call Bob Lazar from, yeah. from Netflix. Yeah. Bob Lazar from Netflix. You'll know. Yo, Bob, call us. Alex Jones, InfoWars, they all know this shit. Yo, behind it! Welcome to the Wrestling House Show, and welcome to another mini-sode covering this year's New Japan Pro Wrestling G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and if this is your first time hearing me talk about the G1, head over to cnjradio.com to check out the previous five mini-sodes I've done covering every block match so far in the G1, and stay on cnjradio.com to check out the rest of the episodes brought to you by the Wrestling House Show. The fifth round of the G1 has passed, and that means we are past the halfway mark of the tournament. And I'm here today to tell you everything you need to know about the fifth round of block action. Stages are being set, and some eliminations are already being made, so let's not waste any time getting down to talking about nights 9 and 10 of the G1 Climax 29. Night 10 occurred on July 27, 2019 at 6pm Japanese Standard Time, and took place at the Aichi General Gymnasium in Nagoya, Japan. The first A-block match during Night 9 was Lance Archer versus Kota Ibushi. Both men came into this match with a 50% win-loss record, and a win meant keeping themselves in a realistic position to compete with the block leaders, while the loss meant a much more difficult journey where they'd need a lot of help along the way. As has been the case in every Ibushi match after the G1 opener in Dallas, Abushi's ankle was giving him a lot of trouble. Abushi has tried to make the best of his injury throughout the G1, but there are always times when you can see the pain on his face and when his movements start to become hampered. With Abushi knowing that his ankle would slow him down and that Archer, being a huge powerhouse, would likely dominate the match if the pace were a bit slower, Abushi got off to a quick start. Abushi used the start of the match to try some fast offense by running around the ring and trying to catch Archer off guard with kicks and strikes. I think Abushi knew that an attack like this wouldn't be feasible later in the match when the pain in his ankle started to build, so he was smart to start the match in this way. Abushi did get in a few strikes, but Archer did well to counter a lot of what Abushi was throwing at him. Archer ended up catching Abushi and setting him up for a powerbomb, only to have both men tumble over the top rope and out to the floor. This is where Archer started to take over. Archer overwhelmed Abushi at ringside in a brawl, and Archer even used a young lion as a thrown weapon at one point. Archer continued to methodically dominate the match back in the ring until Abushi managed to counter a backdrop attempt by driving both of his knees straight down into the back of Archer's head, driving the big man down into the mat. Abushi followed up with a second rope moonsault that was almost derailed by his own ankle giving out, and Ibushi then found a way to powerbomb Archer out of the corner. Ibushi couldn't put Archer away though, and Archer responded with a gigantic chokeslam. Both men started looking for match-ending moves at this point, but Archer's EBD claw was largely kept at bay by Ibushi. 
Ibushi started looking for some knee strikes, and a missed moonsault from Archer led to Ibushi hitting a Bomaye knee strike and his Kamigoye knee strike. Archer refused to even go down to the mat after the Kamigoye, which is something I don't think I've ever seen before. The look of confusion and terror on Ibushi's face when Archer didn't go down after the Kamigoye and even looked like he was trying to get up was pretty priceless. Abushi didn't let Archer rise completely to his feet though, and he hit Archer with another Kamigoye and put Archer away. So with that pinfall victory, Abushi gets his third win and is within two points of the A-block leaders, and Archer falls to two wins and three losses. This was a tough loss for Archer, especially given how great he looked against one of New Japan's top stars. Archer has brought out new moves throughout this entire tournament, and he incorporates them into his matches in great, sensible ways. He's not just doing new things to do them, he's finding the right spots to put them in. In this match, he tried to surprise Ibushi with things like a moonsault and a springboard front flip senton from the apron to the inside. Knowing that Ibushi's own ability to do moves like that was damaged gave Archer a bit of an edge at times during this match. And Ibushi, for his part, continues to impress with his ability to adjust not just to different opponents, but also to his constant ankle pain. Match 2 during Night 9 had the potential to be very bad for one person. It was Bad Luck Fale versus Will Ospreay, and both men had only 2 points as this match began. If you do the math, with only 4 more matches to go after tonight, the loser of this match could at best only get 10 total points in the tournament. And with Okada already at 8 points even before his match with Kenta later in the night, and Okada also having beaten both Osprey and Fale already in the G1, this meant the loser of Fale versus Osprey would be eliminated if Okada were to beat Kenta later in the night. Elimination didn't really seem to be on either man's mind though. Osprey has been visibly frustrated with his first G1 Climax performance, and his neck is still a huge problem. Fale has been frustrated as well, but he's pretty much always angry anyway, so there's not much of a difference there. Plus, Fale and Chase Owens have been talking constantly about storming Area 51 over the past few weeks, so at least Fale has something to look forward to, you know? Speaking of Owens though, he and Jado were as much a part of this match as Fale was. Osprey vs. Fale was a match dominated by as much cheating as I've seen in the G1 so far, and yes, that does include Toriano matches. This was basically a 3-on-1 handicap match, and even the referee, Marty Asami, took damage multiple times. Fale hit his hand grenade finisher at one point, but Bullet Club had cheated so thoroughly that the referee was passed out at ringside. Red Shoes Uno came down to the ring to take over for Marty Asami, but Red Shoes does not put up with shenanigans. At least, not as much as the other referees do. So while Fale covered Osprey after Owens had hit Osprey with a package pile driver, Red Shoes counted to two before giving Fale two middle fingers and disqualifying him. That was actually probably the best part of this match, and seeing Fale chase Red Shoes all around the ring was pretty fun as well. Overall though, this was fine, but it wasn't a great match. It was definitely one of my least favorite matches so far in the G1. The third A-block match during Night 9 was a match where the decision would either pull both men into a tie as far as points go, or it would pull them farther apart and all but end the hopes for one wrestler. It was Evil with 4 points versus Zack Sabre Jr. with 2 points. Speaking about guys being frustrated in the G1 this year, Sabre has been the most vocal about his frustrations in his backstage interviews. When he wins, everything is great and he's on top of the world. But when he loses, Sabre throws tantrums and everything is horrible. During Night 9, though, everything was evil. 
The match started with a standoff, going from a short technical exchange to a series of strikes that were pretty much all dodged by both men. Saber started to use his technical expertise to out-wrestle Evil, but Evil used his power to take some control and set Saber up for a scorpion deathlock. Evil pulled out further into the lead by taking the fight outside and hitting Saber with a hanging, swinging neckbreaker onto the floor. Back in the ring, Saber started to get some holds like an octopus hold and a heel hook, but Evil always seemed to eventually have a counter to escape and to make Saber pay while he did counter those moves. Evil seemed to have scouted Saber just enough so that he knew how to deal with his technical attacks, though Evil didn't often try to outdo Saber on the mat like a lot of other guys try to do. Evil stuck to what he does best, and he hit Saber with Darkness Falls and the Everything is Evil STO to get a rather sudden victory. I liked the match, but I felt like the ending came too soon. Granted, this was the longest match of the night so far, but I felt like Saber had more fight in him. Maybe that was just a testament to how well Evil was shutting Saber down all night, but I was hoping for some more tense moments with Saber wrapping Evil up later in the match. And yeah, maybe I feel that way just because I really wanted Saber to win. I like Evil and I'm happy for him, but this loss for Saber is pretty much the end of his tournament. He's not mathematically out quite yet, but if Okada beats Kenta tonight, then Saber could only tie Okada in points if everything went exactly right for him, and Okada has already beaten Saber, so Saber would be out. So at this point during Night 9, both Saber and Fale are on the bubble, and Okada has the chance to burst that bubble in the main event. The next to last match during Night 9 was another match where the result would either lead to a tie, or it would lead to someone's hopes being crushed. It was Sonata with 2 points versus Hiroshi Tanahashi with 4 points. Sonata hasn't won since the opening night of the tournament in Dallas, but Tanahashi has been building back up after a slow start. You could never count out the ace, and even though I was pulling for Sonata in this match, it was Tanahashi who kept his hopes alive. The match was interesting. I've spoken before about how well Sonata adapts to anyone he's in the ring with, and what that meant for this match is that he and Tanahashi were practically mirroring each other. They would trade moves which led to using each other's signature moves a lot throughout the match, and neither man really ever gained a sustained advantage over their opponent. They both looked like they had the same game plan, and they both gave and received about the same amount of damage. When one man would go to the mat, so would the other. When one man would go to the ropes for dives, so would the other. The match was mirrored so well that even the crowd was split about who they were cheering more. There was clearly a lot of respect between these two men, so the battle was fought mostly in the ring and without any real shortcuts or cheap shots. The least respectful thing done in this match was the return of the Paradise Lock. Sonata tried and failed the Paradise Lock once, but on his second attempt he locked up Tanahashi and kicked him in the butt. I think that's the first time Sonata has been able to get the traditional version of the Paradise Lock in the G1 tournament so far, so that was fun. The Paradise Lock actually served a purpose other than embarrassment tonight though. After Tanahashi got kicked out of the lock, he was noticeably hobbled whenever he tried to run more than a few steps. Sonata saw this and went after Tanahashi's legs a few times to further weaken his legs, and that gave Sonata a big speed advantage. Tanahashi, however, could still use his legs in short bursts of power, and that led to him hitting a dragon suplex and a high fly flow frog splash to get the pinfall victory over Sonata. So with that, Sonata remains at the bottom of the block along with Saber and Fale, and Tanahashi remains competitive by jumping up to a three-way tie for third along with Evil and Kota Ibushi. I'm kind of sad that Sonata's tournament is pretty much over, 
but I've really gained a lot of respect for Sonata in his five tournament matches so far. I already like the guy a lot, but seeing him change up his style and have very entertaining matches with everyone has pushed him up in my personal list of favorite guys. He's been on the cusp of breaking into the upper tier for a while now, and even though his points in the G1 don't necessarily reflect it, I think he deserves to be in the same conversation with the top guys in New Japan. And the final A block match during night 9 of the G1 Climax 29 was a battle to stay at the top of the block. It was Kenta versus Kazuchika Okada, and both men came into this match undefeated in four tournament matches. This match guaranteed that one man would not continue past the halfway point of the G1 Climax with a perfect score, so this was easily the biggest match of the tournament so far, and it did not disappoint. Both men started the match pretty evenly, but Kenta started piling on some kicks that were beginning to affect Okada. Kenta also piled on the disrespect he's shown throughout the G1, and he slapped Okada more than a few times throughout the match. I think Kenta does that in part to try to get people to get angry and to forget about their game plans, but Okada is so supremely confident and self-assured that even when he's angry, he can still retain his composure and fight a smart match. You can see that clearly in this match because even though Kenta's attempts to infuriate Okada did make Okada angry, more than that, they just seemed to fire Okada up to fight back even better than before. Realizing that making Okada angry wasn't necessarily get him the results he wanted, Kenta used a ringside brawl to get an advantage over Okada. Kenta hit Okada with a double stomp from the apron onto the barricade, and that put Kenta on a roll. Kenta would fight back in the ring though, and that led to a few very good sequences where both men just muscled their opponents over, countering a potential tombstone pile driver into a GTS, and countering that GTS with a dropkick. Both men started throwing harder strikes and looked for bigger moves, and though most of the strikes connected, most of the moves were countered. Okada was the first to really take advantage of all the counters, turning a GTS into a spinning tombstone pile driver. He followed up with the Rainmaker and finally put Kenta down for a count of three as the match closed in on nearly 27 minutes. This was a great main event. I'm not totally surprised that Okada won, but I would probably be saying the exact same thing if Kenta had won. I loved the way this match built up and up as it went along. It was one of the longest matches in the G1 so far, but it didn't feel like it. The pace and structure kept me pretty much enthralled from beginning to end. I really thought it might go to a time limit draw as the announcer made the 25 minute call, but I am kind of glad that it didn't. Okada gave himself a good cushion with this win tonight. Okada can now lose one match in his remaining four tournament matches, and he'd still win since he'd have a tiebreaker victory over Kenta. Kenta now has to be two matches better than Okada in order to win. With A-Block's portion of round five over, everyone returned to the Aichi General Gymnasium the very next night. Night 10 of the G1 Climax 29 took place on July 28th at 4 p.m. Japanese Standard Time in back-to-back -back nights in Nagoya, Aichi, Japan. The first B-Block match was a chaos intrafaction match pitting Toru Yano versus Hiro Okigoto. Goto has had a disappointing G1 so far with only two points, but Yano was only doing a little better with four points. Goto needed to win to realistically stay alive in the tournament, so he did not want any part of Yano's usual shenanigans. As the match started, Yano wanted to trade t-shirts with Goto. Sensing shenanigans, Goto refused, but Yano did get Goto to turn his back by playing to the crowd. Yano took that opportunity to put his own shirt over Goto's head and go for a quick schoolboy victory. Goto kicked out, and he was having no more ridiculousness. Kevin Kelly was talking about how Goto and Yano's previous matches against each other clocked in at a total combined runtime of about three and a half minutes, so he expected this match to be extremely short as well. 
It was, and after a series of schoolboy attempts from Yano, Goto wrapped up Yano's legs like he was going for an SDF, but instead of going for a crossface, Goto just rolled Yano over and pinned his shoulders to the mat for three. So that win by Goto brings him up to a tie with Yano and four other men at four points. This was another fun Yano match, though just like in the previous round, I think Yano's first few matches were the most fun so far in the G1. The second B-block match during Night 10 was a battle of will and endurance between Juice Robinson and Tomohiro Ishii. Everyone knows how tough Ishii is, and Juice was out to prove that he could take and give just as much punishment as Ishii could. The match started with both men running at each other and trying to take each other down with shoulder blocks, but the match was truly dominated by strike after strike after strike. Ishii got an advantage in striking first, but Juice was defiant. Juice came back with some punches that sent Ishii reeling and a full Nelson slam that put Ishii down. Ishii was quick to get back up though, and Juice became increasingly defiant, which led Ishii to hit him with a series of brutal chops high in the chest and neck in the corner. This sort of thing continued throughout the match, and as their strikes continued to be traded, both men seemed to draw more energy and ignored the pain and damage that their bodies were taking until they physically couldn't stand up. Then they stood up and did it some more. This match was really about both men pushing each other to the limit, then pushing past those limits and going back for more. High impact moves started to play a bigger role towards the end of the match. Juice hit his juice box double knee gut buster that sent Ishii flying straight up into the air and landing kind of scarily on the side of his head. Juice also hit a power bomb, but Ishii countered pulp friction with a release tiger suplex. Ishii capitalized on that opening and quickly worked up to hitting his vertical drop brain buster for the pinfall victory. That win for Ishii brought him into a tie with Juice for second place, just behind John Moxley. You know, if I had to pick one wrestler whose matches I've consistently enjoyed the most during this year's G1, it might be Tomohiro Ishii. Every match he's had so far has been incredibly fun and has felt extremely important. This match joined his list of great matches. It also once again showed how tough Juice Robinson is. I've seen Juice in these strong style matches before, but I sometimes forget how willing he is to stand up and trade strikes with some of the toughest guys in New Japan. Both Juice and Ishii are great, and I'm happy that they're both doing well in the G1. The next match during Night 10 was a chance for one man to get out of the bottom of the block. It was Jeff Cobb who had two points heading into this match, versus Taichi who had four points. In their tag preview the night before, Taichi offered his hand to Jeff Cobb after the match was over. Cobb hesitated, but accepted the handshake, but there were no shenanigans from Taichi on that night. Instead, Taichi just shook Cobb's hand, smiled, and walked away. I think everyone knew that Taichi was up to something, but Taichi started this match against Cobb on night 10 with another shenanigan-free handshake. Was Taichi going to wrestle a fair match with no dirty tricks? No, of course he wasn't, but it was a fun way to start the match. Having Tai Chi not do anything when you expect him to and just smile is way more intimidating than just trying to get in a quick cheap shot or something. After a brief and friendly exchange to start the match, Tai Chi offered his hand to Cobb for yet another handshake. Cobb had had enough and wasn't going to take the bait. Tai Chi just smiled again and he invited the lovely Miho Abe up onto the apron. Maybe Cobb would shake her hand. This, of course, was a distraction and Tai Chi attacked Cobb, sending him out to the floor. Cobb started to fight back on the floor, but another distraction caused by Tai Chi pushing Miho Abe into Cobb's way led to Tai Chi hitting Cobb with his microphone. Tai Chi then annoyed Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero by using their commentary table and chairs as weapons against Cobb. Back in the ring though, Cobb was done playing around. Cobb looked as strong during this match as he has all tournament. 
The aggressive attack from Cobb forced Tai Chi to fight back in retaliation. Tai Chi managed to hit numerous combinations of kicks, but Cobb's attacks mostly prevented Tai Chi from being able to set up any more elaborate shenanigan scenarios. Cobb's suplexes and slams started to add up, and he eventually hit his Tour of the Islands Power Slam to get a pinfall victory over Tai Chi. I was happy with this match. I've been talking about how much I've been enjoying Tai Chi during these minisodes, but I really wanted Cobb to win during Night 10. A loss would have put him in danger of elimination if Moxley were to win later in the night, plus I just want Cobb to get a few more wins in his first G1 Climax. I like this match a lot because it forced Tai Chi out of the control he thought he had. Tai Chi looked calm and arrogant as the match began, but Cobb shut him up with some great wrestling. I like that. The next to last B-block match during Night 10 was Shingo Takagi, who was looking to break out of a large tie in the block with 4 points, versus Jay White, the only man left in the bottom of B-block with 2 points. White had declared that he was going to win his last 6 matches in the tournament, and Shingo was the second man on his list that he needed to put down. Even though it seemed clear to pretty much everyone that Jay White needed to adjust his game and do something different if he wanted to go on a 6-win streak after losing 3 in a row, White started this match exactly like he started his other block matches. White rolled out of the ring immediately after the opening bell sounded, and he stayed at ringside until Shingo reluctantly had to follow him. White used this, of course, to hit his advantage, but Shingo quickly took back control of the match once they were both back in the ring. Shingo and White had a few minutes at this point where they started to go move for move with each other, but Shingo started to pull ahead with a series of strikes instigated by a slap from White. After taking a bunch of hard shots, White started to play possum like he's done in many of his matches recently. While that didn't directly lead to an advantage for White, it did lead to Gato starting to get involved in the match. Gato tripped Shingo as he went for a pumping bomber lariat, and even though Shingo still managed to string together some powerful offense on White after that, Gato interfered again while White was distracting the referee by playing possum again. Gato got a punch to the face for his efforts, but the repeated distractions bought White some time. Shingo's momentum was broken multiple times by all the shenanigans, and he wasn't able to connect with Last of the Dragon. Instead, White was able to recover well enough to string together two sleeper suplexes, a variation of a brainbuster, and finally hit his Blade Runner rolling cutter for a pinfall victory. I think this match was very well done, and the final few minutes were very tense. I was pulling for Shingo, so seeing White repeatedly try to get Blade Runner and seeing Shingo repeatedly fail to hit Last of the Dragon got me kind of increasingly worked up. It felt like White was getting closer and closer to a victory with each counter he did, and, well, I suppose he was getting closer. I was disappointed that Shingo lost this match. For one, I like seeing Jay White lose. Plus, if Shingo had won, then he'd be within two points of the block leader. Instead, White's victory jams everything up with a seven-way tie for the bottom of the block. One man had the chance to break out of that seven-way tie in Night 10's main event. It was Tetsuya Naito, who had only four points going into round five, versus John Moxley, who sat alone at the top of B-block with an unblemished record and eight points. Naito started setting the stage for this match during his and Moxley's tag preview match during Night 9. On that night, Naito took forever walking to the ring, and he just smiled at Moxley as he walked in slow motion and took baby steps on his way down the ramp. Naito did the same thing during their B-block match during Night 10, and it seemed like he took even longer than he did the previous night. I don't think I've ever heard Naito's music entrance play for that long. Once he got into the ring, Naito ever so slowly removed his ring entrance clothes one button at a time. Moxley was getting hot, and that just encouraged Naito to go even slower. 
Once they were both ready to go, Naito raised his fist in the air and invited Moxley to look up into the sky with him. Then Naito turned his back on Moxley, something that he'd done the previous night as well. The mind games continued as the match started. Naito threw his pants at Moxley, then he rolled out of the ring, all while telling Moxley to take it easy. Naito walked around ringside for a while and pretended to get in a few times before Moxley just laid down in the center of the ring. Naito rolled into a corner of the ring and continued rolling until he was back out onto the floor. And that forced Moxley to finally follow Naito, but then Naito just rolled into the ring and laid down on his back in the middle of the ring, just like Moxley had done. By this point, Moxley was beyond frustrated and entered a state of what I call reckless calmness. He didn't expect Naito to attack him anymore, so, of course, that's when Naito attacked. Naito initiated a brawl on the floor and did pretty well for a while, but Moxley got the better of the brawl by using the barricades and the ring post. Naito started to take a beating at this point, but Moxley was so frustrated that he nearly got himself disqualified by wrapping a chair around Naito's leg and going to hit it with another chair. Red Shoes intercepted Moxley though and he took away the chair that Moxley was holding. That distraction led Naito to hitting Moxley with a version of the Van Daminator by throwing a chair at Moxley and then drop kicking it into Moxley's face. Naito followed up with some more violence outside the ring, then he continued to pile on the punishment back inside the ring. From there, Naito got on a roll, but he couldn't put Moxley away. Moxley fought back with some big moves of his own, and by the final few minutes of the match, both men were hitting their biggest moves. Naito and Moxley each kicked out of each other's finishers in quick succession, and that opened the match up to either man winning at any point. The finish was tense and exciting, and Moxley succeeded in staying undefeated with a high-angled Death Rider double underhook DDT for the pinfall victory. I really, really wanted Naito to win, but I can't deny that this match was great. With that loss, though, Naito is now six points behind Moxley, and since Moxley has the tiebreaker, that means Naito would have to win all four of his remaining matches, and Moxley would have to lose all of his if Naito were to win. I suppose that's possible, but I just don't see it happening that way. And with that, we've officially passed the halfway point of the G1 Climax 29. John Moxley has a firm grip on B Block. He's four points ahead of anyone else in the block. Ishii and Juice are the closest to Moxley with six points each. Moxley has already beaten Ishii, so for Ishii to win, he'd need to win three more matches than Moxley in their final four. Juice would only need to win two more matches than Moxley if one of Juice's victories was by beating John Moxley. Everyone else in the block is in even worse shape. Yano, Goto, and Jay White need to win three more matches than Moxley while beating Moxley in one of those three matches, while Naito, Takagi, Jeff Cobb, and Taichi all have to go on a perfect run with Moxley losing his final four if any of them want to win. At this point, I think Juice is probably going to come within two points of Moxley, and their match against each other during the final night of block competition is going to determine the winner. Over in A block, things are slightly closer, but there have already been some eliminations. Saber, Fale, and Sonata are all in the bottom of the block with only two points each. Fale and Saber have already been eliminated since the best they can hope to do is tie Okada if everything goes their way, and Okada has already beaten both of them for the tiebreaker. Sonata isn't in much better shape. He'd have to win all four of his final matches, and Okada would have to lose all of his for Sonata to get a tie-breaking win over Okada, and that assumes that no one else gets more than 10 points. Osprey also has to be perfect with his four points, and Archer needs a win over Okada and at least three more total wins than Okada in the final four matches. Tanahashi, Ibushi, and Evil all sit at six points. Since Okada has a win over Tanahashi already, the ace needs to be three better than Okada in the final four rounds. 
and Abushi and Evil need to be two better if one of those wins is over Okada. And finally, Kenta is just two points behind Okada, but Okada beat Kenta in round five, so Kenta needs to be two better than Okada to win. So realistically, A Block is more open at the top. I could see a lot of different scenarios happening where tiebreakers become extremely important, but looking at the final night's matches and seeing that Okada will be facing Abushi in their final block match, I think this fight is going to determine the winner. I could see a really complicated scenario happening where Kenta, Abushi, and Okada are all neck and neck, and the Abushi Okada decision will put one of them over the top, even though at least two of them could be tied in points. It would be interesting if Ibushi beat Okada and that put them and Kenta in a three-way tie. That would mean each of them has a tiebreaker over one of the other two, so it would still be a tie. I'm not sure how they would figure that out and determine a winner at that point. But that's a question for another day. I've already talked and speculated long enough, so join me as I continue to analyze, recap, and speculate about the remaining 40 matches in this year's G1 Climax 29 by heading over to cnjradio.com and finding every new minisode of the Wrestling House Show. Also check out cnjradio.com for written recaps and reviews for every show in the G1 Climax Tour, and check out the family of CNJ Radio podcasts all on cnjradio.com. Interact on our Facebook and Twitter at House Show, and check out njpwworld.com for all the action I've been talking about. For now, I have a day to catch up on all the WWE stuff I've been neglecting since the G1 Climax started, then it's the start of round 6 as the G1 enters its jam-packed final few weeks. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Come on, me. Alright, cut the promo. Talk to your fans. You talk to your fans while I'll be here in the background holding up the middle finger to everybody in the universe who deserves one. And if you do, you know who you are. Get him, shooter. John Moxley. We'll be winner of G1 Climax 29. Couldn't have said it any better myself. He's a real panty dropper, Andy. Alright, let's get out of here. Shooter!